And with that, please make sure you have your Bibles in hand as we open up to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 as we continue our new uh, message series looking at the seven churches of Revelation. Today we'll be looking at the church in Sardis, the church in Sardis. In 1990, uh, several very popular movies uh, were nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. Uh, Kevin Costner's Field of Dreams was in the running, along with Robin Williams' Dead Poets Society and Morgan Freeman's Driving Miss Daisy. Some of you may remember that uh, Driving Miss Daisy ended up winning the Academy Award that year. But uh, there was another movie that didn't even come close to being nominated for Best Picture that year. It was a crazy little movie called Weekend at Bernie's. Some of you may remember that movie. If you've never seen the movie, uh, believe me, you're not missing much. Weekend at Bernie's tells the story about these two young hotshots working for an insurance company, and they discover that there's some fraud going on, some double dipping. And so they bring this to the attention of their boss, Bernie. And Bernie is so excited that they've discovered this. As a reward, he invites them over to his house uh, for a weekend party, his beach house in the Hamptons. And so these guys are excited. They show up at Bernie's house uh, looking forward to a fun weekend. And they discover as soon as they arrive that Bernie has just been murdered. He's been poisoned to death. But these two guys don't want to let something as simple as their boss's murder stop them from enjoying their fun weekend. And so they proceed to take the lifeless body of Bernie and drag it all around the Hamptons throughout the weekend, pretending that he's still alive so they can have fun. Well, it's kind of a crazy, crazy idea. Despite what most people thought, the truth was that Bernie was dead. And despite what most people thought, There in Asia Minor in the first century, the church at Sardis, it wasn't alive either. So most people in the city of Sardis would have looked at the church at Sardis and probably been pretty impressed by it. But Jesus, as we'll see in this text today, was not impressed at all. As we're looking at these seven churches of Revelation, we started with the first church, the church at Ephesus. And I mentioned to you several weeks ago, Ephesus was like uh, the New York City of the Roman Empire. Then was Smyrna. Smyrna was kind of like the Acapulco, the Puerto Vallarta of the Roman Empire. And then we had the third city, the city of Pergamum, sometimes called Pergamos. It was kind of a cross between Washington, D.C. and Woodstock. Then last week we looked at the fourth church, the the church of Thyatira, and we saw that it's kind of like the Fort Irwin of the Roman Empire. It was specifically started as a town to protect from an eastern invasion coming against the capital city of of Pergamos. And today we find ourselves at the fifth city, the city of Sardis. Sardis was kind of like the Beverly Hills of the Roman Empire. It's like the Beverly Hills. It was one of the most wealthy cities in the world. Between the 8th and 6th centuries B.C., Sardis was the capital of the Lydian Empire. And in the middle 6th century, uh, it was ruled by a king by the name of King Croesus. Some of you may be old enough to remember uh, the old phrase, oh, as rich as Croesus, or as rich as King Croesus. At the time King Croesus was king in Sardis, he was the most rich person on the planet. This guy was loaded. 
And one of the reasons he was loaded is because that city of Sardis had very large gold deposits along the banks of the creek that wound through the city. It was like a gold panner's dream, this city of Sardis. There was gold all over the place. And so King Croesus became the most wealthy man on earth when he ruled. And he was the first, it would seem, to mint gold and silver coins. That's one thing that Sardis is, is famous for. As you might imagine, as he built up the kingdom, we'll look at this next slide here. As he built up this kingdom, uh, here's an artist's rendering of what it might may have looked like. This gorgeous city uh, spread out through the valley. And then 1,500 feet above the city uh, was this uh, raised mountain that was made into a fortress, a citadel that King Croesus believed was impenetrable. No opposing army could ever, ever possibly overtake that citadel. It was too high on these very steep 1,500 feet up cliffs. There's no way that it could be conquered. At least that's what he thought. And so, as you might imagine, King Croesus uh, got kind of arrogant. He got kind of lazy, thinking that there was no way he could ever be conquered. Well, many of you probably remember King Cyrus of Persia. He's talked about a little bit in the Old Testament. King Cyrus was the king that we read in Ezra chapter 1, was the king that allowed the Jewish people, after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, to return to their homeland of Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. King Cyrus made that order. We read it in Ezra chapter 1. Well, King Cyrus was a very ambitious leader. He was the most powerful ruler on earth at the time. And guess which city in Asia Minor he wanted to conquer? You guessed it. He wanted to conquer Sardis. He wanted to conquer the kingdom of the most rich man on earth, King Croesus. And so King Cyrus rolls into Sardis and he overtakes that lower valley area. But he could see no way for his troops to make it up the cliffs and conquer that citadel on top of the mountain. And so he decided to just lay seeds to the city. They were just camped out for a few weeks figuring that they would just buy enough time for King Croesus to come out of his walled fortress and give up because he ran out of food or something. Well, that was his plan. But after a couple weeks, one of King Cyrus's soldiers noticed something very interesting going on up on the wall of that citadel. There was a soldier, and the accounts are a little bit different. Historically, we don't know exactly what happened, but some say that one of these soldiers of King Croesus fell asleep while he was on guard on top of that wall. And when he fell asleep, he accidentally dropped his helmet over the wall and it trickled down at least partway down the cliff. A few minutes later, the soldier of Cyrus noticed that same soldier who had dropped his helmet popped out from behind a boulder partway down the cliff face, retrieved his helmet, went back behind the boulder and eventually ended up back on top of the wall again. That soldier knew that there was a secret doorway leading into that city. And that soldier that was on guard had just inadvertently revealed it to King Cyrus's army. And so what does King Cyrus do? He causes a distraction on the other side of the, the mountain. All the troops from King Croesus's army go to the other side of that citadel. Meanwhile, King Cyrus's special forces race up that cliff, go in through the trap door, and they overtake the city, overtaking it. And this happened a couple hundred years later as well. Another ruler got kind of fat and sassy and a little arrogant and self-satisfied and thought that nobody could conquer his citadel. 
And the exact same thing happened. The soldiers snuck in at night and overtook the city through a careless spot in the wall. Well, in both cases, the citizens of Sardis had become self-confident. They had become lazy, thinking there was no way they could ever be conquered. But on both occasions, they were wrong. They were dead wrong. As God, God's word teaches us in Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So today we're in Revelation chapter three. We'll be starting in verse one as we look at Jesus's letter to the Christian church there in the city of Sardis. Revelation three, starting in verse one to the angel of the church in Sardis, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never uh, blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. May God bless us as we read and study his word today. In the first verse of his letter to the Christians in Sardis, Jesus follows the same basic pattern that he follows in the other six letters. He addresses uh, the church, uh, the angel of the church. Remember, the angel is the messenger of the church. He says, this is going to the angel, the messenger of the church in Sardis. And then Jesus gives this very brief description of himself there in the first part of verse one. He says, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's start with the second of those two, because the second of those is is easier to interpret. Remember, remember back in Revelation chapter one, verse 20, the last verse in Revelation one, Jesus explained what those seven stars represent. He said they represent the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. And so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying he is the one that holds the seven church leaders, the seven pastors in his hands. And that's a wonderful and comforting thing to say. Jesus is saying, I chose your leaders. I know them and I will protect and I will guide them. Now, what are the seven spirits of God? That he talks about as holding or remember that in Jewish study of of numbers, what we call numerology, that number seven is very significant. The number seven represents God. It is the number of God. So it's a number that represents perfection and completion. So does Jesus hold seven literal spirits in his hand? And the answer is no. There is just symbolism in this number seven. But those who were reading this 2000 years ago, the recipients of this letter, uh, especially those that had a Jewish background, they would have understood exactly what Jesus meant when he spoke of holding the seven spirits. 
Now, in our English translations, uh, they could have done us a favor if they had translated it this way. Jesus is the one who holds the sevenfold spirit in his hands. See the difference? The sevenfold spirit. What does that refer to? Well, that refers to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Remember, Isaiah was one of the most loved Old Testament prophets to the Jewish people. And here's what we read in Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, who's that referring to? Who is this shoot that will come up from the stump of Jesse? And many of you would probably guess that it's Jesus, right? Jesus came from the tribe of, remember, tribe of Judah, and specifically from the line of King David. And King David's dad was Jesse. And so Jesus is being referred to here. This is a messianic prophecy, a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And so it says he will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So if you look at verse two there, beginning with the words, the spirit of the Lord, you can count how many descriptions of the spirit are given. And you'll discover there are seven characteristics of the spirit. He is of the Lord. He is the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And so the Jews from this point forward understood when someone spoke of the sevenfold spirit of God, it's a reference to Isaiah 11, the seven divine characteristics of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is making it clear here in verse one that he holds both the pastors of the churches and the Holy Spirit in all of his wisdom, the Holy Spirit in his hand. The Spirit and the Son are working hand in hand to speak to each of the churches. And the Spirit and the Son of God are working together to deliver this very important message to the Christian church in the city of Sardis. So, do you remember the the basic three-point outline that uh, Jesus tends to follow in in most of his seven letters to the seven churches? He normally, after he gives that initial greeting and identifying himself with one of those descriptions given in Revelation 1, uh, Jesus then typically, number one, will give the church some praises for things they did right. Secondly, he'll rebuke them for some things they did wrong. And then finally, number three, he'll give them some promises If they repent and do what's right, some promises that he'll bring their way. Well, if you look at that basic outline, that outline isn't followed by Jesus in his letter to the church at Sardis here. Jesus doesn't start with any wonderful uh, compliments. He doesn't start with any praises. He goes right in to the rebuke just halfway through verse one. His rebuke is recorded for us in the second part of verse one all the way through verse three. Jesus doesn't follow his three point outline because this church, as we'll see momentarily, was so bad. Jesus didn't want to waste any time getting right into the rebuke because this church needed to make some major, major changes. ASAP. Notice what Jesus says in the second part of verse one. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive But you are dead. I want you to imagine 
having been the pastor of this church, receiving this letter for the first time from John the Apostle, giving the exact words that Jesus had told them to deliver and hearing these words of rebuke. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Imagine how devastated you would be if Jesus Christ said that to you and to your church. Wow. Jesus has already leveled some pretty strong rebukes against the Christians in Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira. But this rebuke, this rebuke of the Christians in Sardis is hands down the strongest and most severe rebuke yet. Jesus rebuked the Christians in Ephesus for forsaking their first love. Theirs was an unloving church. They were doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And Jesus told them in no uncertain terms, Ephesian Christians, you need to repent. Jesus rebuked the Christians in Pergamum for allowing certain members of their church to participate in moral compromise. Theirs was a compromising church. Some were following Balaam. Some were following the Nicolaitans. And Jesus told them in no uncertain terms, Pergamum Christians, you need to repent. Jesus rebuked the Christians in Thyatira for tolerating Jezebel in their congregation, who was leading Christians into all sorts of sexual immorality and idolatry. Theirs was a polluted church. And Jesus told them in no uncertain terms, Thyatira Christians, you need to repent. All three of these churches, Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira, had some glaring sins that required repentance. But Jesus didn't tell a single one of those churches that they were dead. But that's exactly what he says to the church here in Sardis. He says, Christians in Sardis, your church is dead. It has a reputation for being alive, but it's deader than a doornail. You're dead. You're dead. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, for any of us who are serious about living lives that are pleasing to God, and any of us who are serious about being part of a church, that is pleasing to God. We read these words here. And we've just got to ask a couple questions. We've just got to ask a couple questions. Question one, what were the Sardis Christians doing that was so much worse than what the Ephesian Christians and the Pergamum Christians and the Thyatiran Christians were doing? And then the second question, what does a Sardis church look like today? In 2021, in the Victor Valley, in Southern California, what does the church of Sardis look like today? A church that Jesus thinks is dead. Well, I've given a lot of thought to these questions over the past few days, and I'd like to share with you some conclusions that I've come to. Last month, I had the opportunity on a few consecutive Friday nights to to teach our teenagers here at Impact and On Friday nights, almost every week, the teens get together, junior hires and high schoolers, and we usually have a short lesson. And over the course of those two weeks, I introduced the teens to a concept that I just recently learned. It's a concept called moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, what on earth is that? Well, in the early 2000s, a well-known sociologist named Christian Smith set out to research the religious beliefs of modern-day teenagers and young adults in America. And so Christian Smith, a well-known sociologist, 
had this survey of 3000 American teenagers and he wanted to see these teenagers across the nation, what they believed about God, what they believed about the Bible, what they believed about heaven and hell. And so he had this survey and he revealed his findings in a book that was published about 15 years ago, a book called Soul Searching. And long story short, Smith discovered that American teens and young adults hold many strong beliefs about God and about heaven, but most of their beliefs are not biblical. They're they're not biblical. The teens themselves were convinced that their beliefs were Christian beliefs, but the sociologists knew differently. He coined a new term for this very popular belief system that most American teenagers and young adults believe today. And he coined this new term moralistic, therapeutic deism. It might appear to the untrained eye as Christianity, but it's the exact opposite of traditional Orthodox Christianity. He spells out in his book five key beliefs. Five tenets of moralistic therapeutic deism. Number one, God exists. He created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Looks okay so far, doesn't it? Number two, God wants people to be good, nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And then number five, good people go to heaven when they die. The sociologist came to the conclusion that this is what most American young adults believe today. And they mistake it for Christianity. Now. If you've only been a Christian for a short while, or if you're just kind of checking out this Christianity thing, you may look at that list of five and say, yeah, I don't get it. That looks like Christianity to me. But if you've been a Christian for a while, if you studied the word of God for a while, certainly you'll have some things glaringly in error that you notice in these five statements. Do you notice, for starters, something that's missing in these so-called Christian beliefs. You you notice something that's glaringly absent? And hopefully you all are answering Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is nowhere to be found in here. Isn't that interesting? There's no Jesus mentioned at all. And so what these five beliefs are actually saying is this. Number one, God exists without Jesus. Number two, we can be good, nice and fair Without Jesus. Number three, we can be happy and feel good without Jesus. Number four, we can call on God and he can solve all our problems without Jesus. And five, we can go to heaven without Jesus. Do you see the glaring problem in these five statements of faith? Jesus is expendable. Take him, leave him. It doesn't really matter. That teaching is not only misguided, it's heresy. It's satanic 
of the devil. For the past 2,000 years, Satan has been peddling the lie that Jesus is unnecessary. Jesus is expendable. You can be good on your own. You can have a relationship with God on your own. You can make it to heaven on your own. Satan has tried to convince us that God exists without Jesus. But the Bible makes it clear, no, he doesn't. The Bible tells us in John 1, verse 3, Through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Satan tries to convince us that we can be good and nice and fair without Jesus. But the Bible makes it clear, no, we can't. We can't. We read in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 22, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even what? Not even one. This righteousness from God comes through faith in who? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Satan tries to convince us that the goal of our lives is to be happy and to feel good about ourselves. But the Bible says no way. In Romans chapter 7, Paul makes it clear that we should hate our old sinful nature because it lives in rebellion against God. And God doesn't call us to pursue happiness. He calls us to pursue righteousness. God is not very concerned with your happiness. He has much higher priorities for you than your happiness. If you aim for happiness, you'll miss it every time. Happiness comes as icing on the cake as we pursue the glory of God and his righteousness. Well, Satan tries to convince us that God is like our butler in heaven. Just call on him when you need him. Call on him uh, when you're in trouble and you can ignore him when you don't need him. But the Bible says that's dead wrong. Jesus came to earth because God so loved the world and God wants to be intimately involved in every detail of your life. One of Satan's biggest lies is attached to that fifth statement of faith there under uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. That fifth statement that says good people make it to heaven. Satan's been peddling that lie for the past 2,000 years. He tries to convince us that good people go to heaven when they die. To which the Bible responds, no, they don't. Do you know how many good people, I should say it like this, good people are going to end up in hell? Good people go to hell all the time. Because the Bible makes it clear in John 14, verse 6, goodness can't get us to heaven. You remember what Jesus said in Luke 18, 19, Jesus in Luke 18, 19 said, no one is good except God alone. In the Old Testament, it says that our our good, our righteousness is like filthy rags compared to God. And so there is no one good enough. Any uh, notion that I can be good enough to make it to heaven, I'm only fooling myself. No man can be good enough to make it to heaven. No woman can be good enough to make it to heaven. Good people, so-called good people, go to hell left and right. So what does Jesus actually tell us about making it to heaven in John 14, 6? He says this, one of the most important verses in the entire Bible for you and I to memorize. John 14, 6, Jesus answered and said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, when you consider these five spiritual beliefs of moralistic therapeutic deism, would you agree that none of these beliefs are offensive? Would you agree that none of them are intolerant or threatening? That's right. But that's night and day 
from true Christianity, isn't it? True Christianity is offensive because people take offense at the cross of Christ. True Christianity is intolerant and threatening because when we proclaim that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, we are proclaiming that every other way is wrong. We are claiming that every other religion is wrong. We are saying that every other belief system, even those that masquerade as Christianity, are wrong. True Christianity doesn't cave to the pressure to conform to popular culture. True Christianity is countercultural. True Christianity in the eyes of the world is intolerant. True Christianity in the eyes of our sinful, depraved culture is exclusive and narrow minded because there's just one narrow way and his name is Jesus. The only reason he came and died on that cross is because he says there is no other way. At its heart, Christianity proclaims that only the gospel of Jesus Christ leads to life. Every other gospel, every other religion, every other belief system leads to death. That is orthodox Christianity. So, why did Jesus tell the Sardis Christians that their church was dead? I believe he did so. Because they had pushed aside the true gospel of Jesus Christ and replaced it with something more culturally palatable. A fake Christianity that wasn't countercultural. A fake Christianity that wasn't offensive. A fake Christianity that wasn't intolerant or threatening. And everyone in town looked at the Sardis church and gave it rave reviews. Wow, what a great church. The church's music is beautiful. The preaching is so relevant. The church members are engaged in their community. The non-Christians looked at the Sardis church and said, that church is full of life. And Jesus looked at that exact same church and said, no, it's not. That church is dead. It's dead. Because the Christians have adopted a different gospel that has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And that gospel is a gospel of death, not life. There is no life without Jesus. Without Jesus, a church isn't just weak. That church is dead. It's dead. Look at what... Jesus says to the church in Sardis, beginning in verse 2. Wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Oh, all of those who lived in Sardis were well aware of how King Cyrus had conquered King Croesus' kingdom a few hundred years earlier. While they were lazy and sleeping through the night and distracted, his special forces had come in and conquered their city at night, and it was overtaken by morning. Jesus says, I come in much the same way to bring judgment on you. 
when you least expect it, when you've let your guard down, when you're lazy, when you're arrogant, when you're self-satisfied. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring you judgment. I'm going to bring you judgment. Judgment is coming. Well, in verse four, Jesus does get around to lifting up a quick praise. It's a very little one, but he gives a little praise in the first part of verse four. Jesus says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. These days, when we speak of someone soiling their clothes, we talk about them uh, pooping their pants. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not what Jesus has in mind here. He's not talking about the Sardis Christians pooping their pants. What he's talking about is this white garment that he begins to say as these, this verse unfolds. This white garment has become dirty. It has become marred. It has become soiled. You remember what Jesus inspired the Apostle Paul to say about the church in Ephesians chapter 5? It's a wonderful passage where Paul is giving instructions to husbands and wives. And, and Paul points out that the church is the bride of Christ. It's one of the names of the church. It's the bride of Christ. And, and Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, uh, it's in verses 26 and 27. Jesus washes his church with the pure water of his word in order to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So Jesus is saying a short praise in the first part of verse four to those who had not compromised the gospel and peddled a false gospel in their church. Instead, there were a few that were holding on to the true gospel. And then he makes them this promise, starting in the second part of verse four, this promise that if they will continue to keep their white robe from being soiled, keep themselves from getting polluted and corrupted by others in their church and corrupted and polluted by their sinful culture around them, that Jesus will continue to move in that direction of making them holy and blameless in the sight of God. Isn't it comforting to know that as we stand firmly on the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will be overcomers and Jesus will never blot our names out from the Lamb's book of life. Isn't that comforting? Well, Jesus' message to the Christians in Sardis was so important, both for them and for us. Jesus was making it clear it doesn't matter how alive people think a church is. If Jesus isn't at the center of it, it's a dead church. Sadly, there are many dead churches in America today. They peddle a false gospel that is easy on the ears and light on the conscience and so watered down that Jesus isn't even needed. It's a gospel that is tolerant, inclusive, open-minded, yet dead. You look at these first five churches, four of them received a rebuke from Jesus Christ. You look at that church of Ephesus and it shows us that even when a church is unloving, Jesus is very patient in that with that church, allowing that church time to repent. When a church like the, the church at Pergamum is compromising itself morally, 
Jesus is very patient with that church, giving them an opportunity to repent. And when it comes to a church like the church at Thyatira, that was not just a compromising church, but a polluted church, giving into the ways of this woman called Jezebel. Even in a case like that, Jesus shows himself to be very patient, allowing those Christians in that church to repent. But I'm telling you, Jesus has very little patience when it comes to any church that abandons the gospel of Jesus Christ and replaces the very Son of God with a cheap imitation. Something that makes Jesus completely expendable. Jesus has very little patience for that. And he says to that kind of church, you are dead to me. But if you look again at those verses, even in the case of this church that he said was dead, even then, in his mercy and his grace, Jesus gave them an opportunity to repent. What a mighty God and Savior we serve. Thank you, Jesus. You're pretty amazing. Lord Jesus, you're more patient with us than we deserve. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for giving us opportunities to repent. Lord, my heart aches for so many young people in the millennial generation and Generation Z, oh God. So many in our younger generations, Lord, that they buy into moralistic therapeutic deism and they mistake it for Christianity. They actually think, oh God, that you're some butler up there in heaven that they can call on just when they're in trouble and they can ignore you the rest of the time. They actually believe that your number one goal for them is to be happy and like themselves. They actually believe that if they're a pretty good person in the eyes of the world, they're going to make it to heaven. And God, it just breaks my heart that so many millions of Americans, not just young people, but so many older Americans as well, Lord, they buy into these lies that the devil has been peddling for the past 2,000 years. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes. And I pray that you would awaken your church across America to stand firm on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we would in no way compromise the gospel to please itching ears in our sinful culture. Lord, I pray that we would be less concerned about Christianity being tolerant than we are with making sure we're preaching the truth from the word of God. Lord, forgive us for being people pleasers instead of being God pleasers. Help us to stand firm on the truth of the gospel and speak the truth in love. And may the lampstand at Impact Christian Church continue to burn brightly as we do. In the strong and mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. If you've never made a decision to accept Christ as your Savior and your Lord, I want to invite you to make that decision today. If you try to make it to heaven by your own good works, you're not going to make it. The Bible makes it clear that there is none that is righteous, not even one. Your good deeds, things you think are pretty good and impress God, they're like filthy rags compared to God. He is perfectly holy. We can't even fathom how holy our God is. And so it's so important 
Choose Jesus Christ. He's your only sure bet for making it to heaven someday. And if you want to accept Jesus Christ, remember the ABCs. A, admit that you are a sinner and that you need the Savior, Jesus Christ. B, believe that he died on the cross for your sins and made a way for you to be forgiven and to have a relationship with God and make it to heaven someday. And C, choose to begin following Jesus Christ today. If you've made that decision, I encourage you to reach out to one of our prayer counselors. Their names and phone numbers are at the bottom of your screen. I encourage you to reach out to one of us. We would love to talk with you today and pray with you and make sure that you have Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of your life. God bless you as you stand firm upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't compromise. You don't allow your gospel beliefs to be polluted by this world. You stand as a God pleaser and not a people pleaser. May God bless you as you trust and love and obey Jesus Christ with everything you've got. God bless you.